Welcome to this Endo Life episode 66. I'm Jessica Duffin and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. So guys, a huge thank you to everyone who has supported me with the book launch. Yeah, you guys have just shown up and all of your congratulations and lovely emails and well wishes and, you know, buying a copy of the book if you can. That It's all been so appreciated appreciated and um yeah massive thank you it was a really big week for me last week I had my final exam of my women's health coaching course um I started the endometriosis accelerator program course on Friday I had the book launch um it was a really big week and you guys just being there to support me just was everything so thank you before I dive into today's episode which I'm so excited about I was trying not to swear then um (laughs) I don't know why because I swear all the time I just wanted to let you guys know if you don't know what I'm talking about with my book my new book this endo life it starts with breakfast is out now um you can purchase it on my website in a digital copy um or a print copy or in kindle format on amazon all of the links are on my website and in the show notes um if you are interested in buying the print copy a couple of people have asked me this it is um printed through a company called blurb so that's where my um link redirects you to and they have um different versions of the website depending on which country you're in so just make sure i think you have to scroll either to the far top or very far bottom and change the currency and then that will change which country is shipping from and stuff like that because obviously if you're in Australia you don't want to be paying in British pounds because of the conversion rate and then the shipping is going to be crazy so make sure you're logged in to your country uh, country's website and if you don't know what the book is about um, it is a nutrition guide and cookbook for living and thriving with endometriosis and part one is completely science-led, full of research and studies on nutrition medicine for endometriosis with practical tips and reflections on my own journey. Um, It's a really non-judgmental book. So it's all about just picking and choosing the bits of information that work for you um, and would fit into your lifestyle. And then the second half features 28 blood sugar balancing, hormone-supporting and anti-inflammatory recipes. And a couple of you have asked um if it's suitable for gluten-free and um vegans yes it is it's totally gluten-free it's totally plant-based but if you want to add animal products you you can as well um I've made that um very clear that that can be done and is an option also I wanted to let you guys know that in January 2020 I will be launching your endo life coaching program I'm really excited about that um so it's a one-to-one three-month health and life coaching program to help you thrive with endometriosis. Uh, I only have 10 spaces available because I really want to protect my energy and my health and the 
you know, the best way that I can do that is managing my time effectively. So I have 10 spaces. And at the moment, throughout November and December, I'm taking inquiries and um, bookings. So if you're interested in hearing more, uh, we can arrange a call so I can find out a bit more about your story, a bit more about what you're looking for support with. Um, and then you can hear more about what this coaching program is but to give you a bit of an overview coaching is completely client-led so it's about what you're bringing to the table and what you want to work on but within that framework we'll be exploring your inflammation levels your gut health um your hormone levels any nutritional deficiencies that you might have that might be affecting endometriosis any comorbidities which are co-conditions that often come with endometriosis and of course addressing pain reduction and helping you to create a lifestyle that suits you with endo. So if you want to hear more about that, just email me at hello at thisendolife.com and the email address is in my show notes if you're unsure and just email me about, you know, put coaching in the subject line and um, I will get back to you and we can book in a time to talk. This episode is sponsored by my friends at BU. BU are the people helping you to reduce your period pain with nature. They provide quality, pure CBD balms, drops and sprays, as well as their incredible period patches, which you guys know I love. Some of you have asked what's the best way to get the most out of your patches. Just like most things with endometriosis, everyone is different. So you need to find a method that works for you. But many have written in to say that they find applying the patches a day or so before their period helps to soothe and calm the inflammation before their period even starts. I tend to wear them one to two days before my period so that I can get, um, well, I, I get a bit of backache. So that really helps to ease that. And as a result, I find that the pain is much, if I get pain, it's a lot more subtle when my period does start. They come in a pack of five, so should last for the majority of your period. And you can subscribe so you can get them every month. They're $6.99 for a pack or $4.99 if you go for a subscription. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes and start soothing period cramps in natural way. This episode is also sponsored by my free endometriosis diet grocery list. This free download gives you an overview of the endometriosis diet and eating for your hormones, tips on shopping for endo on a budget and deep dives into everything I eat on a weekly basis every month. I've also provided my favourite resources for learning more about nutrition for endo if you want to go that bit further. This download is a really perfect way to get an understanding of an anti-inflammatory diet for endometriosis and what that might look like. As always, this guide doesn't replace your medical treatment and it's not intended to treat or cure endometriosis, but it provides you with options that help me to live well with endometriosis. And it's here to inspire you to shop maybe a little bit differently and try different foods out. It's not a diet protocol, so it's not a diet that you should be following, you know, to a T perfectly. This is my personal diet and it's here to serve you and inspire you and give you some ideas and see what eating for endo is like in real life. To download, just head to the show notes and follow the link to get your copy. I'm so excited about this interview. I would have had Dr. Andrew Cook on the show beforehand if I wasn't so like intimidated that he might say no, because in my head, he's just, you know, one of the leading um, 
kind of endometriosis pioneers who's really changing the face of endo treatment. So it's an absolute honor to have him on. So Dr. Andrew Cook is a world-leading endometriosis excision specialist and best-selling author whose approach to endometriosis treatment is just absolutely revolutionary. I love his perspective on treating endo and the way that he looks at patients as a whole. And I truly believe that his work is going to change the way that the medical industry addresses endo moving forward. I mean, you can hear in this interview how excited I get about his ideas and his perspective. Um, He is the founder of the Vital Health Endometriosis Centre, where they take a holistic and integrative approach to healing and perform only the best surgery for endometriosis, which, as you'll hear in this interview, is excision. Chatting with Dr. Cook was just such a breath of fresh air. I have never encountered, um, sadly, I've never encountered a medical professional who takes this approach and who really understands the patient's journey and experience so fully cut and who really bears witness to actually like some of the most appalling surgeries that are done across the world and only cause, you know, they only cause more damage. And he makes a statement in this, which I wonder if you're going to pick it up. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but when he said it, I was just like, wow, like to hear him see what is happening with endometriosis from like in that way, it's just, it really um, is affirming and just echoes our feelings and what we've gone through. Anyway, his determination and passion for revolution revolutionising endo treatment um, and, you know, ensuring excision is a standard is just so inspiring and exciting. Um, and, yeah, I hope that you guys find it just as, just as exciting because you can really tell that I'm just so caught up in this conversation. Um, in this episode, we chat about the difference between excision and ablation surgery. And, in fact, um, Dr. Andrew Cook kind of breaks down ablation and and what it really is um how he works with patients not only remove endo but support his patients to heal and hormonal birth control for endometriosis we also answer some of your questions a lot of you um sent me questions in on instagram so we address them and if that if your question isn't in this episode then it will be in a live q a that andrew and i are going to do um on instagram sometime in the near future so i really hope you love this episode I really think you are. Um, yeah, I'm super, super excited to hear what you guys think about it. Um, it was an honor to have Andrew on. I think he's, I think he's brilliant. So yeah, enjoy. So thank you so much for being on today. Um, I, I thought we could start with where, you know, your work and the Vital Health Endometriosis Center. Um, what I love about your work and why I was so interested in getting you on is that uh, especially in terms of the UK, we don't really have a very holistic approach to endometriosis treatment over here. And as far as I'm concerned, I feel like you are really leading the way um, in terms of like changing the way that we do endometriosis treatment. So I wondered if you could tell us about the integrative approach that you take to endometriosis and kind of what that actually means and why that's your preferred approach sure uh, and thanks for having me on it uh, is is an honor and you know endometriosis it's a 
interesting condition. And uh, as we all know, um, there's probably a lot of room for improvement in how we treat uh, women with endometriosis. And uh, so, you know, for myself, you know, it's been oh, 30 years or so. And, you know, part of the process of learning was how to uh, remove it correctly surgically, which made a big difference. And um, you know, with surgery, I can remove disease, uh, but I'm not, uh, it, that doesn't uh, equate with health necessarily. And then Western medicine, while, you know, there's a lot of strengths and I'm glad we have it, uh, I think we've kind of drifted off course of it, you know, to where it's almost to the point, if you're not healthy from a Western medicine standpoint, it's a pharmaceutical deficiency. And I, I just think we've gotten off course on that. And then with a lot of the, the issues that uh, women with endometriosis deal with, they're not really well treated by uh, Western medicine. And that's thus, you know, I grew up with a family of engineers just trying to problem solve and look at things and think out of the box a bit. And so back in the 90s, that's when I started pursuing uh, kind of the integrative treatment. Because philosophically, what we're doing with integrative medicine is saying, well, let's get to the root and rebalance uh, uh, different aspects of the body so we're getting optimal function and uh, truly trying to get to good health and, and wellness. And, you know, that's been uh, evolution over the years. We're getting better science, better information with the integrative aspect. But just like I've said, if you had uh, a construction crew show up to do an addition on your house and they open the toolbox and there was just a big hammer in there, you know, you would say, wait a minute. <laughs> like, no, it works great. You just hit it hard on the screws. They work good too. So, you know, we expect that, you know, uh, people have different tools and resources to uh, apply to specific situations. And in a lot of ways, I think the same thing for medicine. And there's different philosophies, there's different approaches, and uh, different things work better for uh, uh, different people in different situations. Part of the challenge is, you know, the diagnostic tools we have are really lacking in, in so many ways. And, and thus the patient gets good news, your test is okay. And they're like, well, okay, then why do I feel so bad? And what can I do better? And so I think with integrative medicine, it really is covering a wide range and it, it varies from person to person. Um, probably in the U.S., one of uh, a significant hurdle is what passes as food supply here. And really, it's it's pretty pathetic uh, and unhealthy. And uh, so, you know, the, the average American, I think, what are we, up to two-thirds uh, of people are, are overweight. And it's just a sign of what we're consuming is uh, not perhaps the, the healthiest choices. And the processed foods result in a lot of inflammation and stress on the body. And some people's genetics uh, tolerate that stress better than others. Probably as on average, women with endometriosis, you know, they're not in the best position to tolerate that stress. Yeah. And then the list kind of goes on. You know, by the time a lot of people get out of the shower, they've uh, been exposed to a lot of toxins and different products. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's really looking 
at the the whole person and uh, addressing whether it be physical therapy or acupuncture or or you know the, the list kind of goes on as far as how are we really getting to a good place i think that's absolutely wonderful and i you know i have to ask do you get pushback for this approach because um I have kind of like worked in the endometriosis community now for about five years and I I definitely get pushback for my views. Um, and I just wondered as a, uh, you know, as a, as a doctor who's taken this integrative approach, do you, do you find that you're getting resistance from the medical community? Um, the medical community, probably more in the past. I mean, there was a time in which, you could be in trouble from a licensing standpoint for right. getting I, nutrition, but you could give chemotherapy and kill somebody and be okay. And that's certainly we've made some progress. Although more recently, a lot of the integrative uh, uh, websites, you know, have been kind of banned by Google, I think. So. Yes. that Yeah. It's so frustrating. It, it is. It, it literally happened to me. My My site dropped, like my site visits dropped in half overnight. Yeah. Which, you know, at some point, you know, we're adults. We want to be informed. You know, we don't want to be misled. Although there's, we don't even get that whole argument, especially here in the U.S. Um, currently with our political situation. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, it's just another hurdle that women with endometriosis are dealing with. As the Internet has long been, to me, just a, a, a lifeline for women with endometriosis oh, as far as communication. I so agree. So, so, yeah, that's uh, frustrating. But then, and I won't get too distracted, but as uh, you know, my, my uncle was a particle physicist, and again, I kind of have this background and interest. And if we look at what is medicine based on, it's based on Newtonian physics, you know, uh, all of what, you know, from space to computers to everything else, you know, this is all quantum physics, and quantum physics is, is one of the most well-validated aspects of science that we have, and it's been around for 100 years, but you start looking at uh, uh, probability waves and expectations and, and all this stuff uh, where a lot of business is very front-center with quantum computing and all this, medicine, we're, we're 100 years behind, and so a lot of what's been considered woo-woo stuff is proven, you know, uh, uh, physics, and we're just behind the curve on this. And so, um, when we start talking about integrative medicine and and all the different things you can talk about, genetic expression, you know, based on you know emotional being, and and it's just it's fascinating when you start to look into this, and uh, it's it's a real area of interest for me. So, I think yes, there's pushback. And quite frankly, some of that pushback is by very outdated, outmoded thinking that, uh, you know, just hasn't permeated into medicine as much as it has other areas of, uh, of society and business. Mm. And and how do your patients respond to this integrative care? I mean, I know that I, I don't feel like I'm do any kind of surgery right now but if I could go back in time I would do anything I could to find the money and come to you because your approach to me is just absolutely what's needed so I'm sure that you have others who feel the same and are just astounded by the level of care that you give. Mm -hmm. Well we try and again I think to me 
endometriosis is not a cancer, but there's a lot of similarities. So like Steve Jobs, you know, he had a very treatable condition. He ignored the surgical removal of what was uh, uh, treatable at the time and just did uh, integrative treatment. And he's no longer with us. Now, if he would have combined both, he would still be here. Mm. And I think with endometriosis, again, you know, there's the disease burden, there's the implants in the pelvis, and there's a lot we don't understand because it does have systemic overall body effects. And so I've used the analogy if we have a car that gets horrible gas mileage and, and you can tune it up, put new tires on it, and if it's still getting horrible gas mileage and a friend is like, well, is that parking brake supposed to be on the whole time? You go, oh, <laughs> no, actually, let's take it off. So in a lot of ways, to me, the surgery is getting the parking brake off. And But at the same time, if the tires are bad and it's out of tune, we have to do all that stuff. So if somebody doesn't have a healthy lifestyle, diet-wise, you know, activity-wise, emotional, uh, you know, trauma, I mean, all these things that come into play, that's where... You know, I think, again, it's truly saying, you know, endometriosis is a life experience. It has so many different ramifications. And then in the current environment where what could be a very treatable and relatively short-term disease often is 10 years later. And we have the physical trauma and all the medical trauma and and from lack of good care that uh, adds up. So... Yeah, so I think it's just combining all the stuff is needed and, and recognizing uh, the extent of how this really permeates uh, a person's uh, being and, and life experience. Absolutely. And like it's it's obviously clear from our conversation that you take a tailored and individual approach with each patient. Um, but if a patient couldn't come to you, couldn't come to the clinic for whatever reason, or maybe they didn't feel that they would you know, they needed a surgery at that time, but they wanted some more complementary methods of management. Are there any therapeutic options that you generally recommend? I know, obviously, we do have to take into account like individual genetics, but are there kind of some general recommendations? Uh, There are. And uh, I mean, you have the uh, book, you know, the endometriosis health and diet program that's available on Amazon. And it has a fairly extensive... uh, a section on uh, some of those integrative uh, treatments, you know, as far as toxins and stress and sleep and movement and herbal and stubble treatments and whatnot. So that's a one resource, you know, it's one of many out there. And then um, also, I mean, on our Instagram, uh, Vital Health Endometriosis, uh, we try to put up a lot of different stuff for people that they can uh, follow. But I know speaking for myself, uh, I have insulin resistance, which uh, a lot of people do have, maybe undiagnosed. And it's a thing where over time it, it has its toll on, on the body. And, and uh, in my case, you know, uh, 10 years ago, I was on, I think, five different pharmaceuticals and not headed in the right direction. And I finally started <laughs> practicing what I preached. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, did some basic lifestyle changes, and uh, it, it was phenomenal. I mean, even though I preached this to actually walk the walk and to see how much change it made, and so I'm off all the meds now. I feel much better. That's and incredible. So, 
Yeah, and like I say, people say, uh, oh, it'll get easier. And I'm, you know, seven, eight years into it. It's like, you know, it's still, it's a daily challenge. And uh, so it's not an easy thing. In some ways, surgery is easy. You know, you go through the inconvenience uh, physically and financially, but ultimately you, you lie down and get something done to you where, you know, the end stuff, you, you got to do the heavy lifting and, and, you know, get ready to fall off that horse a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I know that one so well. Yeah, it definitely is a constant, you know, I, I I adopt a lot of the practices that I've now, you know, I've now since read in your book. And um, I started years ago with an anti-inflammatory diet. And that was really the key thing for me that took me from being in excruciating pain to almost being in zero pain. Um, pretty crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. It, it was honestly in the space of a month mm-hmm. um, that it happened. And that really triggered for me this just deep frustration of like, I couldn't. And it, at the time, it was really hard for me to find. Um, mm-hmm. I It's definitely become more available now. But also, I think I didn't necessarily know what the right terms were to Google at the time. Um And I was just so angry that this information wasn't easily accessible um, and I had to really piece it together. But, you know, since it's been an involving practice for me and, you know, when I'm ovulating, I feel that I can eat more sugar because I'm like, oh, I'm two weeks from my period. And, you know, sometimes I just (laughs) fall off the wagon. Um, So it's definitely always a, a learning curve. And at the moment, I'm on my kind of own journey with, looking into blood sugar dysregulation and a bit of cortisol um imbalance going on there and I'm start and I've just started physiotherapy so it is definitely a journey um and it depends what resources you have available to you like I've only just been able to afford to have physio so it nutrition was really my my only form of management back then um Mm. so I do agree with you I think it 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 takes conscious dedication every day um to make those changes for sure that's true probably jessica one comment uh, briefly to mm. i think might be helpful for people too is when we talk about food and diet and i mean in general you know people are well what and i think uh processed foods are bad As my son once said what's processed food I mean, if it's in a box it's processed if it looks <laughs> came out of the ground it's not but Everybody is different. There's food allergies, but probably uh, food sensitivities are a, a significant part of it. And so there's a basic method I'd like to briefly touch on yeah. that may help people because everybody's different. You can read this diet and that diet, and pretty soon it's like, okay, I can drink water. What else? Uh, and so Absolutely. if there's something that needs to come out, we need to do it. But we don't want to unnecessarily eliminate anything. So one uh, strategy is you can eliminate for, I say, a minimum of two weeks religiously, 100%. And then at the end of the two weeks, chow down. I mean, challenge. So you, whatever you've eliminated, eat a lot of it. And it can be a couple hours. It could be a couple days. But whether you're having uh, uh, vestibulitis, uh, pain around the opening of the vagina, or bladder symptoms, or just pain in general. I've had people that uh, thought they had endo, and it was actually a gluten sensitivity, and they eliminated it, and and pain was 96% better. So elimination for two weeks, 
and then challenge. And you can find out what foods are triggers. And I agree with you. So while theoretically, maybe, you know, X, Y, and Z to follow strictly, we're here to live life too. You know, so as I've said, if, if key lime pie is a trigger for me and I'm out Friday night and there's a really good, and I don't, <laughs> and I don't have to really do anything Saturday, then yes. I'm making a form decision. Maybe I won't feel the best tomorrow, but you know, it's worth it or That's it's exactly not. exactly what I do. I'm yeah, no, I'm really grateful that you offered, you know, offered that information because I think we can get really overwhelmed when we read about all of the triggers and, um, just not, just not know where to start. And, and I think sometimes we can either go one way and go really extreme with the restrictions, or we just get paralyzed with fear and we, and we don't, make any changes because it just feels so overwhelming so no thank you so much for sharing that in terms of hormones I've had a lot of requests about uh to ask you about the hormones and I haven't ever covered that in detail on the podcast because um I no longer take any form of hormonal therapy and I'm not a doctor so I don't really feel like it's my area um to cover so it would be great to hear what your perspective is on hormonal therapies and the way that they use for endometriosis and you know when when do you feel that they play a role um and also I know that um is it Alyssa is that how you pronounce it mm-hmm. we don't have it over here that's been in the media recently um mm-hmm. and there was a lot of articles about it being kind of like a wonder drug and a new drug and you shed some really interesting light on that on your Instagram and yeah so i just wondered if we could kind of talk about that branch of treatment sure so i mean hormonal treatment is what it is it's relatively crude it can be helpful it's palliative meaning we're trying to treat symptoms it's never been shown to be curative i mean we're not going to get rid of the disease so, you know, in general, endometriosis stimulates endometriosis, uh, estrogen stimulates endometriosis, progesterone helps to suppress it. So the basic concept with hormonal treatment is either lower estrogen, increased progesterone, or lower in both. And it can be helpful. It's an option, you know, and I think so if somebody has a, a day or two a month that they're down and out with their period and we can lessen it with the uh, say birth control pills, uh, or you know, skip uh, some periods. Then we're reducing the number of days that uh, uh, we're impacted with pain and increasing uh, quality of life. And so, it has a certain strength. It's a certain uh, um, effectiveness. And at the same time, I think part of the problem, especially as you get into the Luprons and the Relissa, that. I think there's uh, at least the feedback I get from patients that kind of felt misled that, you know, they've been overpromised and underdelivered on efficacy and then side effects can be much worse. So I think to be properly informed and understand. And then even when I went through my training at, at Johns Hopkins, you know, there was a patient we saw and my professor said, Andy, look, we'll put her on Lupron and if she's better, she's got endo. If she's not, she's not, so we'll send her to the shrink. And that's just uh, wow. scientifically not based, uh, incorrect information. So, and when I first got out of training, I mean, that was what we were taught. You know, you put them on Lupron, do a hysterectomy, take the ovaries out, the endo's gone, it, it cannot survive, which 
you know, again, I got out and I was seeing it and I, it, I didn't understand why, but it wasn't the case. Uh, in the late 90s, uh, Dr. Bloom did research on the endometrial plant showing it could have its own aromatase enzyme activity. So in other words, it could make its own estrogen. And thus that answered the question. And a couple of years ago, we presented a paper on a transgender uh, uh patient that had gone through uh, endometriosis surgery and then the transition and was, uh, you know, post-hysterectomy ovaries out, high-dose testosterone, so a hormonal desert where theoretically it shouldn't have grown, but um, six or seven areas had uh, endometriosis proven on pathology. So it, uh, so knowing the limitations, so, you know, there's certain people that uh, continue to have endometriosis symptoms in spite of either ovaries out or suppression of GnRH agonists. Mm-hmm. My my biggest uh, problem with uh, the depo uh, GRNH agonists like Lupron is that they're long-acting, and they have a significant side effect profile. So not that they're evil, but perhaps the presentation has been less than transparent uh, over the years. And so it's an option, but we have bone density loss and other concerns, and, and to me, if we can get the surgery done properly, that, you know, is uh, often curative. Now, the Orlissa is, uh, so technically, is it a new treatment? Yes. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Lupron is uh, an agonist, meaning it stimulates GNH, uh, GNH release. The Orlissa is an antagonist. It, it blocks, but they affect is the same. So clinically, what they're doing is turning the over, ovarian production of estrogen off. So the, the, there's a technical difference, but really it's the same thing. Now, the Orlissa is a pill, so you know the advantage is it wears off quick and uh, if you have significant side effects. But at least here in the U.S., it runs close to $1,000 a month. And wow. it just so. So it's again, it's another treatment option, but it's not like we got this magic new great treatment, you know. And, and so, non-hormonal treatment in the future, you know, will probably be more effective. But we're still waiting to get that in uh, the mainstream. This episode is sponsored by my friends at BU. BU are the people helping you to reduce your period pain with nature. They provide quality, pure CBD balms, drops and sprays, as well as their incredible period patches, which you guys know I love. Some of you have asked what's the best way to get the most out of your patches. Just like most things with endometriosis, everyone is different. So you need to find a method that works for you. But many have written in to say that they find applying the patches a day or so before their period helps to soothe and calm the inflammation before their period even starts creating like a greater effect when it does arrive. I tend to wear them one to two days before my period so that I can get, um, well, I, I get a bit of backache. So that really helps to ease that. And as a result, I find that the pain is much, if I get pain, it's a lot more subtle when my period does start. They come in a pack of five, so should last for the majority of your period. And you can subscribe so you can get them every month. They're $6.99 for a pack or $4.99 if you go for a subscription. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes and start soothing period cramps the natural way.
This episode is also sponsored by my free endometriosis diet grocery list. This download gives you basically a lowdown of what I eat every week on um, a monthly basis and my personal take on the endometriosis diet. It's not a protocol, set protocol that you have to or should follow, but it is here to serve you, give you inspiration and help you see what eating for endometriosis might look like in real life. It's there for you to kind of take inspiration from and help you put your own approach together. To download it, just head to my show notes and follow the link to get your free copy. So we've talked very briefly about surgery, but um, I'd love to dive in a bit more now. I know that you launched um, a social media campaign recently called Ban the Burn. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could tell us more about this and why you're advocating for excision over ablation. Um, Personally, I've had two surgeries. My endometriosis isn't severe, but the surgeries haven't been effective Mm-hmm. for me and I now have adhesions that we're working on with my physio so this is really interesting to me and um, something that I I'm, I'm so glad that you are leading this social media campaign and calling attention to it yeah no it's uh I don't know I mean sometimes I feel like I've been on the uh, journey and watching a genocide and come back to to you know the home home base and trying to explain what's going on and and it's just the reality of the magnitude of the impact that this has on women's lives and the uh, quite frankly less than ideal treatment that's being provided it's just it's it's got to stop you know it just it's got to stop so that's where you know what it comes down to is and i got put a plug in and i'm right you know like a person standing in front of a locomotive coming on Misuse of terms is so widespread, and I've done a little bit on the Instagram on it. There's a few more. Technically, uh, so the coagulation surgery, the burning surgery, is commonly referred to as ablation surgery. That's not correct. Ablation technically means vaporization. It's not burning, but that's the way And I may be too little too late. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day, but... Uh, I think the proper term is coagulation surgery. And the problem, so the disease, it's scattered. There's a lot of different appearances. It's easy to overlook. You get the big invasive disease, it's easy to see. It's harder to get it all out, you know, as far as the skill set. The non-invasive end of that's, you know, as I've said, there's no skin inside, but there's peritoneum. You think of saran wrap is the peritoneum that kind of lines the inside organs. If we had pepper or chia seeds on saran wrap, that's kind of the endometriosis on the peritoneum. But there's different appearances. It can be black. It could be orange. It could be red. It can be clear. It can be, you know, just all these subtle appearances. And it's and then. You know, laparoscopy as a diagnostic tool can be very accurate in the right hands. In the wrong hands, it's very inaccurate. And so that's part of where the other campaign I'm kind of on is to get people to uh, photo document at least and ideally video document because we have it's objective information. The op report is subjective. Mm -hmm. So the you have to do what's called near contact laparoscopy 
to find all these lesions, and they're kind of scattered. So if you're trying to spot treat, that's really what the burning surgery is, is coagulation, trying to spot treat the lesions, it's, you're not going to get it all. And the data, you know, is, it can be better, but basically we're probably 85% of the cases or so with the coagulation surgery, we're leaving disease behind. So you're debulking or reducing the amount, and so thus it makes sense. Yeah, it was better for a year or two, and then it's back, and you have people going through surgery after surgery. And uh, one conference, you know, even at, at, with an endo expert, they're like, "Well, how many surgeries are you going to do?" And my question is, "How many surgeries are you going to do until you do it right?" You know, I mean, stop, you know, basically assaulting women with poor surgery. So the burning, it's very inaccurate the endometriosis can be right on vital structures. So we need to be very precise, meaning we need to get in, get the bad tissue out, leave the good tissue behind and not be taking any excess tissue out or damaging tissue that we're leaving behind. And it just, you know, I think I used the example of if we have a fly, you get a fly swatter, it's precise, we get it. You get a shotgun and you blow a hole in the wall, you may or may not get the fly, and it's in price. So, so that's why ban the burn. I mean, it's easy, it's quick. You know, the reimbursements, at least here in the U.S., are the same if you do a 10-minute burn to surgery or an hour or two excision surgery. And um, so there's just all these hurdles. But, again, as an advocate for women in, a, in places where I can have a voice to help get the word out, this has to stop. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. You know, we have the, the information, we have the skills, and, and I think it's, it's not going to be a top-down change. It's going to be a bottom-up change. And what I mean by that is, as women with endometriosis get more educated, and that's what I'm trying to do with the Instagram, is educate women to the point they are smart consumers, and, and as the physicians get more women that come in and say, all right, you're going to do endosurgery. Let's talk a little bit about exactly what's going to happen. And as they demand wide excision, then it's going to force the market and the physicians to either stop doing surgery they don't know how to do properly or to learn how to do it, which, you know, in the defense of the general uh, OBGYNs, I mean, they're just doing what they're taught and they're doing the best job they can. And they're good people and they're good surgeons, fortunately misinformed. And so collectively, is it going to change overnight? No. But, you know, the Internet and the knowledge, it just empowers women. And, and as a group, you know, the endometriosis uh, patients are fighting to get proper treatment for themselves. And they're also blazing the trail for women to follow down the road and going to save a lot of pain and suffering. So it's not easy, but together we can do it. No, absolutely. I really agree with you. I think that there's a lot of information for a long time that's been um, inaccessible for people with endometriosis. And um, also there's been this lack of confidence from the community. They feel, you know, we feel belittled sometimes and we don't know how to ask for what we need or we're made to think that we're being kind of, I don't know, being stupid or paranoid um, and kind of put put back in our place. So having that a that knowledge and awareness gives us the confidence to to you know ask for what we need um and it, it's so interesting I mean when I had my second surgery I 
knew about excision surgery by that point. Um, and I was actually working for Endometriosis UK, the charity over here. Um, and so I waited an extra year in order to see a specialist at a, um, over here we have like um, a couple of centres that are known to be endometriosis specialist centres. And I knew that the guy that I was seeing did excision surgery um, and he did it privately as well. So I waited an extra year to see him on the NHS. And when I, after the surgery, I still had pain and I had an endo nurse assigned to me. So I called her and she was like, oh, it's just, you know, I'm sure it's fine. Give it six months. And if it hasn't gone, come back. So I went back at six months and I saw one of his team members, not him. And um, she was like, well, you know, it was, we burned it. So there's probably just some cells left. And yeah, I had gone to him to have excision. So even, is there a way around that? Because I obviously was asleep, <laughs> so I couldn't control it. Um, and I just wonder like, what, do you have any suggestions for a situation like that? Or if you are at the mercy of the NHS, I mean, I know it's different over there, but is there a way that we can kind of exert our authority and say, you know, if, if you're not going to do excision, then I'm not going to have it. Like, I don't know why he didn't do excision. I have no idea. Yeah, well, yes, I don't either. Um, it, it's it's a challenge uh, in part of, again, I think uh, the process I'm trying to work through is to get people to the point that they can look at the surgical photographs and look at the pathology, because you're right, is surgeons are starting to understand that uh, patients are wanting excision. So I'm starting to see what I call micro excision. So they got to do a couple millimeter biopsy in a few places okay. and they say excision of endo. And it's like, well, no, that didn't happen. So, you know, in a pathology report, if the specimens are 0.3 by 0.4 centimeters or three by four millimeters, mm -hmm. that's not wide excision. You know, wide excision is several centimeters in, in size. And so sometimes going through and reading, and I'm going to continue to post and do uh, uh, videos on this topic because I just think it's critical. And, um, and then over time, that doesn't necessarily – so the discussion ahead of time and hopefully – Part of, I think, just a, a key component in, in my first book, I have a chapter on what constitutes a healing relationship. That's half the battle because really in a healing relationship, you have respect, you have, you know, commitment to the patient and you have, you know, it's, it's obviously an imbalance in knowledge and authority, but that, that imbalance is being used in the patient's best interest. And as I've tried to say to physicians, I mean, there's times people ask me a question and, and I'll say, I don't know. As a doctor, it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> you don't know. You're supposed to know everything. No, I don't know, but let's work together yeah. to either figure it out or find somebody that can help us. And I think patients are totally open to that because really, you know, the uh, um, it's just, you know, this is a challenging disease. And if we're just honest and transparent and work together on this, then you know, that's where we're going to get the best results. So in the future, though, I mean, if a doc is, is consistently doing biopsies and calling an excision and that word gets out, then we know that may not be the first choice, you know, for other people to go to. Mm. And when would you say, like, is, is there a time 
that a patient can recognize that surgery is necessary like and how do they if if they if there is that point how do they go about finding the right surgeon for them yeah so i think you know surgery it's it really a lot of this comes down to quality of life you know and you know our, our uh, uh integrative or less invasive treatments providing the change and the improvement in quality of life that we want and um so, it, and at the same time doing surgery, I can't tell you how often patients are sitting there four days after surgery saying, you know, and I'm like, how's the pain? They're like, nothing compared to my periods. You know, so if, you know, if you talk to your uh, male and said, we're going to do surgery on you every month. And if you want pain meds, quit whining. Uh, it would be a, a, a little bit different story, you know? Yeah. So, and as far as I think, again, if the patient, if the physician will take the time and often they're in a situation it's hard to do that but to address the concerns you know the biggest concern i see on a pair of patients is that nothing's going to be found at surgery and they're going to be crazy after all and that's just not the case uh women are not physicians most of them are not but they do live with the body and they know what's going on and it's very accurate uh, what patients tell me and what i find inside so if the physician has uh, the patience and uh, the respect to take some time to address very valid concerns, because a lot of treatment's not being done correctly out there, and will, again, and I think if they would be willing to photo document, meaning adequate pictures before and after treatment to show what was there and what, what treatment was provided, then those are all good signs, you know, because uh, ultimately... If they're confident in what they're doing, then they should be good with expressing that. You know, and if they're not, then they're not going to want to um, provide much in the way of details. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's really helpful. Thank you. I I've never been offered um, pictures. I don't know if that's something to do with the NHS or perhaps because my endometriosis isn't so severe, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, and I am aware that you are launching an online community called Endo Thrive Tribe. And I know obviously that you're really big on empowering the patient. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about this and what that would involve and, and how people could join. Um, sure. So I think you know, Endo, you know, been in it 30 years. You know, we've gone from uh, it most people not being aware of what it is, to we're, we're getting finally an awareness of the disease and the severity of the symptoms. And, you know, I've spent, you know, countless uh, hours and portion of my life uh, digging this stuff out and getting rid of it uh, and helping get rid of disease. And at the same time, you know, uh, what I, my passion really is in uh, helping people get to that point where they're living that abundant, amazing life that, you know, we all uh, have the opportunity for on, yes. on this. Point. I love that. And, and, it, and so there's all the physical issues and, and how we bring that together. And then, uh, you know, quite frankly, probably a lot, if not the majority of one with endometriosis have been through a lot of trauma and we have to address that and look at uh, transformation and healing and 
And, you know, it's like a person getting out of prison. You know, the, the gate slams. There's a lot of opportunity. But if you don't have a house or job or anything else, there's a transition to make that happen. And so, you know, I won't go on a lot of specifics of the, the program. You know, my uh, fiance is a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And so combined, we kind of have East meets West. And as she says, you know, we're the, the original functional medicine people. And, and uh, so I'm so excited about it. And it's really in this just, you know, again, sometimes I think of women with endo as if they're standing in the middle of a field with a bunch of landmines and everybody's around them saying, no, this way, this way. And if you take the wrong step, it can be detrimental. So just to, to have an organized program of people that are at that point where they want to uh, make the uh, transformation and, and truly get into healing and just that positive, amazing place that is possible for women with endometriosis. You know, we just had this, uh, Miss Tennessee was one of my patients and she went through that transformation. And, and it's just amazing to watch people uh, now be able to do those things. And so that's my life's passion and uh, where I would like to uh, focus my efforts in the future. That's incredible. I, I, I can't tell you how I don't know how like elated and happy that makes me because I, I feel like our values are very similar and I feel that, you know, my kind of tagline to the Sendo life is living and thriving with endometriosis because to me it's not enough to just live with endometriosis. Like I feel like it's possible to to live that that life that we want to live with endometriosis and I was kind of determined to do that. Um so I love the sounds of this community. When will it be available? Do you have like a, a launch date at all? <laughs> Sooner than later. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're working on it. And uh, uh, so if, if they go to the website, vitalhealth.com, there's a little pop-up at the bottom after a bit that uh, you can sign up for the mailing okay. list and we'll certainly notify people as soon as it's available. And, and I think... Uh, you know, Jessica, it's because, you know, we've spent so much time trying to get the word out, trying to bring awareness of endometriosis up. And then I see people saying, you know, basically I'm a victim of it's a life sentence. And to me, the next stage and in, in, in the message of endo is no, it's not a life sentence. And yes, you can have a great, amazing life, maybe challenging, but they're, they're, but that's the next message is there's the next phase afterwards and how do we heal from this and so that's the exciting part yes absolutely and I think about the you know the young girls who now we have this awareness about endometriosis and we've got all of these stories online unfortunately the media don't want to hear any of the good news stories they want all of the horror stories and then you've got these girls being diagnosed earlier because we're pushing for earlier diagnosis and then they're seeing these horror stories online the worst case scenarios and they and that's what they're left with they don't think there's any fu future for them and so i really i'm so thankful to people like you who are pushing this yeah this awareness that you can have a good and happy life with endometriosis and yes there might be challenges along the way um but it's possible i think that's so essential for the people who are currently living with it but the future generations who might have it as well um so, yeah, I'm completely with you there. Um, 
So for anyone who, obviously, I'm sure lots of people want to join the Endo Thrive Tribe. Um, but if, obviously, they can't do that right now. So I know that you've got a couple of books. And I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of those. And if people wanted to learn more and begin empowering themselves which kind of order do you recommend reading them in Mm -hmm. so the the first book the stop endometriosis pelvic pain uh, it goes through i mean the first half is kind of going through some of the basics you know what constitutes healing relationship and then the details of uh, kind of the physics of surgery and whatnot um and then the latter part does have uh, some of the integrative aspect, uh, uh, not as much as the endometriosis health and diet program book, um, which is the, the last one. Uh, so the first one's really a good overview as far as endometriosis. I started as a pamphlet and it <laughs> turned into a book. Amazing. It's- it, uh, it's just trying to get the word out because, you know, again, I feel like sometimes I'm here. It's like, you know, it's just it's not, you know, people need to understand what's going on. Uh, the second one, the survival guide, it's uh, thinner. It's more uh, pictorial. Um, I, I think it's uh, can be helpful uh, as a, a basic overview or perhaps for some uh even younger, you know, teenagers, I think it'd be good for as well as adults. And, uh, and then the, the last book is, uh, the one with the, all the diet and recipes and integrative stuff. And, and it's, uh, I guess the plug is, uh, that's the ideal. You don't have to hit the ideal and it could be a little Nazi, you know, discipline, but, um, you know, some people can pick and choose of what uh, seems right for them at that point. And, you just got to get started. I mean, take a step. Um, so they're uh, all available on Amazon and, and uh, uh, just a little bit different uh, focus in each book. That's brilliant. Thank you. And yeah, I, I love your books. So um, I totally recommend them and do recommend them regularly. Um, and finally, how can a patient get in touch with you and seek treatment I, I had a lot of messages saying can you ask him how much surgery costs I was like maybe I can ask for a direction of like where to find that but um yeah lots of questions about how to um see you sure so there's two uh, a couple basic ways you know one is there are uh, kind of an online form on the website to submit and uh you know they can do that we'll get back to them uh they can always call the office and, and talk to Michelle. But basically what we try to do, there's about a 15-page, apologize for the length of it, uh, questionnaire. But we're trying to get enough information to really understand uh, what the patient's going through. And then often, you know, previous off reports or that kind of stuff. And then uh, to evaluate. Um, so uh, the website, uh, one of the online forms, or they can call the office. Um, and... Um, uh, you know, the cost, it, it depends on patients, on the insurance and, and, you know, the degree of the surgery and all that. But that's part of what, uh, as they're going through, we're trying to understand what, what they're going through and how we may be able to help. And then part of the process is explaining what involved. And uh, there's no pressure, you know. So we're just trying to help people understand if it makes sense to them, then that's great. If uh, not, that's fine, too. They, they keep me pretty busy okay brilliant and I will for anyone who's listening I'm going to put 
all of the links to your website, your books, and your Instagram um, in the show notes. So you can go straight to there to get in touch. Um, do you have an extra five or ten minutes for me to answer, ask some of the like main questions that came through from readers? Sure. We'll, we'll try. Okay. Thank you. Um, okay. So... Uh, the first one is, what should an excision specialist do with previous scar tissue from ablation? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, basically what we're trying to do is to remove uh, bad stuff and leave the good stuff in. It's a little simplistic, but the more surgeries the patient's had, the more I think it really comes down to that. So whether it's scar tissue or fibrosis or endometriosis, I mean, and you don't always know 100% at the time. So any of those abnormal findings can create pain and uh, need to be treated and ideally get down to good, normal, healthy tissue where we can heal up. And and uh, it is possible to, to reduce and get rid of scar tissue with, with good uh, surgical technique. So, for example, with myself, um, I my last surgery was two years ago. And I went to a physiotherapist recently because I also have painful bladder syndrome. And so I wanted to start addressing that with um, some physio. Um, and she was saying you have adhesions and she's doing some work on on the adhesions to break them down. But because I don't really have trouble with my endometriosis, like, I, I mean, I would have I have trouble if I've kind of had too much sugar or coffee or gluten, for example, I do feel that quite quickly. But um, if I'm, you know, eating well, then I'm I'm fine. My I can literally have a completely painless period. So, would you recommend that for someone like me, I should just continue with the physio and kind of working on that scar tissue rather than having like another surgery to cut out that those adhesions? Because would adhesions not grow again after that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and the answer is it depends on the person. So if we're doing the physio and it's helping and, and getting better quality of life, then yeah, I mean, that's certainly over surgery. Um, if there's a point at which you hit a wall and then the decision is, is it good enough or do we need to go back and try to uh, reduce the scar tissue? And, and again, in general, my expectation is we get about a 50% reduction on average with with uh, adhesions or scar tissue. Can be better, can be worse, but uh, the concept that once adhesions, always adhesions, I don't agree with. I think majority of people you can reduce and eventually get rid of adhesions. Okay, great, thank you. And I know that we we covered this, but I just want to for the person who's written in. Um, I just want to ask it and just recap. So she says that her last lap was 18 months ago. How often should she be having endo removed? So from what we've discussed, it's kind of down to the quality of your quality of life and how endo is affecting you. Yes. And, you know, I mean, with our data, it appears about 85% of the time the endo has gone and does not recur or come back. So hopefully you know, uh, you get the surgery to really end that nightmare. Um, but again, it comes down to quality of life and, and all the different things that can come into play, whether it be uh, muscle spasm or, you know, like I say, painful bladder syndrome, uh, interstitial cystitis, uh, neuropathic pain. I mean, the list kind of goes on. 
So in general, we want to make sure we're covering as many of the bases as possible and then uh, where it's needed to, to go to surgery. So when you say 80% of the time it doesn't come back, is that with excision, excision surgery? Yeah, 80, okay. 85 roughly. Okay. I, I think that's our numbers and I think uh, others who doing that agree about same results that's amazing and um another person has asked how significant can scar tissue be after surgery she hasn't stated like which type of surgery mm-hmm. uh what well, can be uh you know not all scar tissue causes surgery but it definitely can um and uh so and it, it doesn't show up on tests. You know, if, if, uh, you can have almost everything scarred to everything inside and it just doesn't show up. So, um, and, you know, that's, uh, that's probably even a, a more difficult hurdle than the endometriosis because uh, especially for general surgeons, uh, it, they're just not, they don't operate for adhesions. They don't operate for pain and adhesions. And even one of my good uh, associates was like, I, I just, I don't really do surgery for adhesions. You know, what do you, what do, you do? <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> um, so I think um, the whole adhesion area is even harder to get good, adequate treatment, uh, but it can uh, cause the pain. So again, quality of life, there's, you know, it's not without risk going through surgery and doing all this stuff. So if it's, if I'm balanced, quality of life is okay, you know, fine. But I've also had people that can barely eat because they have partial obstructions and they've been told, well, as long as you can eat, we're not going to do anything, but the quality of life stinks. And so that's, that's not right either. So this next question, I'm not 100% clear on. So I don't know if you can, maybe this will make more sense to you. Um, so she's saying, have you seen endometriosis take over thyroid levels? especially for us who have had a thyroidectomy. So I'm assuming she means, has, have you seen endo effects like thyroids? Um, maybe like the hormonal imbalances that are going on or the stress that's been, in, you know, caused by endo? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, so directly, you know, not really. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the stress and you start looking at uh, the the physical stress and how it affects the body physically can certainly impact it. You know, they say hormones run in packs. They're not solo creatures. So certainly one being out of balance can affect the other. Um, and, you know, I think that really beyond the discussion of today, but there's what is endo? How do we define endo? Is it just the implants? And if that's not affected if the implants is not part of it is that part of endo because there's certainly overlap with everything from chronic Lyme disease to fibromyalgia to autoimmune diseases yeah. and where do we draw the line or how do we define it and um, I don't know anybody has those answers but it all overlaps in the same person and and I see stuff with endometriosis I don't understand uh, for example you know, I've had people with autoimmune a condition called ITP, where the uh, spleen eats up the, the um, platelets, and uh, it's an autoimmune disease. I had one patient that, uh, following her endometriosis surgery, cleared up and went away. Wow! Interesting. I'm not surprised, but I don't understand it. Uh, so, so I think it's just in those kind of areas. You know, it's 
you got to be really cautious before you you think you know everything and write it off. Uh, so. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And actually, I I have a suspicion that I've got low thyroid levels at the moment. So that's a really interesting answer. Okay, the next one is we've asked, we've answered that already in our conversation. Okay, I'm currently managing well. What are my future risks if I don't have excision surgery? Oh uh, well, you know, I think um, yeah, that's we could talk about that for a long time. One, if it's to me, they're the two basic types of endo or non-invasive endo that's on the surface and create horrendous pain, but it doesn't really destroy tissue. Uh, the invasive endo where you, you know, have the bowel resections or it eats into the bladder and all that. I think over time, although we don't know it proven 100%, it seems to be progressive and it will destroy tissue. So in the non-invasive case, uh, if a lot of gain quality of life, if you're feeling good, you know, things are all right, then um, I mean, keep with the, the integrative, healthy stuff. I mean, theoretically, we should be able to do enough health and wellness to help prevent some of this stuff. I don't know that we're in reality there yet. But so live the best, healthiest life you can. And, and uh, again, anything's possible. And the more that we're aligned with a true self, I think, is where we're going to get the uh, the best results. So. Um, I have patients with invasive endo that we're, we're monitoring. You know, we follow them with CA-125s and ultrasounds and stuff. And, and um, you know, again, if somebody's committed to really living as healthy a life as possible, then, yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, watching and seeing how everything's going. Okay, great. Thank you. And another person's asked, if you're unable to take hormonal medication for endo management, what should they do? Um, I would, again, that's kind of, uh, are we talking, they've had, cause there's a lot of people who have surgery and they're told we well, got to go on hormones. They'll come back, which I don't, uh, subscribe to, but, uh, uh, so if the surgery's done properly, you know, people don't have to do hormones. If they're trying to do hormones to get better symptoms and they can't do hormones, then sometimes there's a way to work around it a bit, but, um, then you're getting into just trying to optimize health and wellness and, and trying to find other factors. Like if gluten drags you down, like what you're saying, if, you know, if I have sugar or gluten, then I pay the price. Well, so is it endo? Is it just part of the overall picture? But it's coming down to quality of life and what can we do to maximize, uh, you know, how we're feeling and living? Yeah, absolutely. Um Okay, this one's quite interesting. Should an endometrioma be ex excised rather than ablated? Yes, that I mean, is the short answer. So you know, it's uh, as I've said, if you, in a, uh, if people that know what a hacky sack is, a kind of little leather sack that people kick around. You know, if you thought of a hacky sack full of uh, chocolate syrup, that's kind of the endometriosa, uh, endometrioma. Mm. You got to get the lining out. If you don't get the lining out, then it will uh, come back. If you're, again, ablating, usually they mean they're coagulating since nonspecific. So we're trying to destroy all the lining of the cyst without destroying too much ovary, which is inadvertently going to be the, the byproduct. Um, and you, the true ablation, again, the problem is getting uh, all the, the tissue ablated. So 
there's plenty of studies showing that, uh, you know, excision of the endometrioma cyst is uh, superior as far as efficacy and, and uh, lower recurrence rates than uh, trying to burn it out. That's great. Thank you. That's really helpful. So there are so many more questions that I think maybe we, you know, if you're open to it, we could reschedule um, a time to talk and go through them or maybe do that on Instagram live so people can interact and ask questions in real time because there are countless questions for you. Um, I've never had so many questions for a guest before, so you're you're very popular. Um, but Thank you so much. This has been absolutely one of my most favorite episodes and um, I'm fascinated by the work that you do. And if I ever feel that I need surgery again, I really want to do as much as I can to come over and see you um, because, yeah, I I love the work that you're doing and the approach that you're taking. And I'm so grateful. Yeah, I'm so grateful that you are showing up for us with Endo like this. Thank you so much. Well, you're you're quite welcome. The feelings mutual, Jessica. Thanks for all that you're doing, and it's uh, together we're going to make it happen. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I hope you have a great day and a great weekend, and um, yeah, hope to speak to you soon. Okay. Take care. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do, or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website which is www.thisendolife.com and you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website Um, I've put the link in my show notes it's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. (laughs) 